comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. recording and this is out now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron and after a break it is also Abe. Yo yo yo. Hey he's back. I'm back. You feeling good? Feeling a lot better thanks. You feeling you feeling great? Uh I don't know about great. Feeling pretty good. I like that vote of confidence. Moving on. Out Now is a film podcast which has Abe and I discussing new movies weekly. We also bring in a little discussion about the latest movie trailers, box office results and predictions, a retro review that has to do with the main film of the week, games and other fun stuff. The main films of the week, this is a twofer, are going to be Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and Sherlock Holmes A Game of Shadows for this really packed episode, and why not pack it up more with a couple guests? And joining us tonight is writer for a damn dirty blog and current owner of his own human centipede, Jordan Grout. Hello. And writer for Huffington Post, Mendelssohn's Memos, and box office pundit, Scott Mendelssohn. How you doing? Great. Awesome. Good, good to have you guys here. This is... There's a, there's a lot to discuss in this. This, this is a ton. There's so much. Yep. And we, we just put this up into two movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is episode 39, by the way, for anyone keeping score. And a few announcements. Um, we have a couple bonus shows coming in the coming weeks, which I mentioned previously, but we recorded one just recently, and there should be another one uh, coming soon after that. And they're both for in conclusion with the WD TV podcast, the Walking Dead TV podcast, which is one of our sister shows on the HHWLD podcast network. So we're happy to kind of help pitch in for them and we're looking forward to, you know, having everyone share into the fun of, of zombie related bonus episode podcasts. So there's that. Also, iTunes reviews. It is always fun to get ratings and reviews on iTunes, you know, promote awareness and whatnot. It's all good. So feel free to go for that. It's very simple to do. Be awesome. Um, yep, <laughs> that's how many that one. And anyway, now moving on, let's go to Know Everybody, where we try to set the tone for the podcast by asking a few few questions to each other, kind of get to know everybody. And I'm going to let Abe start this one off this week. Awesome. A great one for you, Aaron. Oh, good. Okay. Who is a better sidekick, Wafflebot or Dr. Watson? <laughs> Keep coming at me with the Wafflebot. <laughs> let's see. I haven't seen Wafflebot attempt... Uh, you know, to, to resuscitate someone's life. That said, I don't know if he can't do that either. He probably could. And he does come with syrup, but he, well, he probably, he does have playful banter as well, so. <laughs> and emotions. That puts, that put, that puts Wafflebot pretty high on the list, but I'm still going to say, I, I like Jude Law's mustache, so I'm going to go with Watson. 
Fair enough. What if Bafflebot had his mustache, though? Ooh. Damn. Like a Chef Boyardee style mustache. Exactly. You guys are killing me, so I'm going to have to wait till Harold and Kumar time travel back to the Victorian age and meet up with Sherlock and Watson, bringing Wafflebutt along. And once that happens, I'll have a final decision. See, that's a fourth film I would be interested in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Scott. Yes. Jeremy Renner, better fit as a spy for the Bourne series or the Mission Impossible series? Well, keeping in mind, I think the Bourne series should be dead and buried. I thought he was quite good in Mission Impossible. Um, having said that, I do not want him to replace Tom Cruise anytime soon, but I think he would make a fine supporting character in the franchise. So, Mission Impossible. <laughs> All right. Aaron, let's do a bit of uh, current events. Now that Kim Jong-il is dead, which distinctly non-North Korean actor would you choose to play him in the horribly race-bended biopic that will eventually be made? <laughs> oh, um, let's see. Um I was going to say Trey Parker was an automatic choice for me right there. <laughs> so Ronry. So but, um, hmm. What's a better one? <laughs> uh, let's just, let's just say Ken Jeong. Let's just go for it. <laughs> let's just go for Ken Jeong. He's pop. He's already popped up in Transformers. So we might as well just put him out. I wonder if he has, I wonder if he has a choice for himself. Like how like Mandela, like said Freeman's like the only person that should have played him. I wonder if Kim Jong-il had a person that he should say, would say only should play him. Denzel Washington. That... <laughs> All right. Uh, Jordan, Sherlock and Watson or Batman and Robin, which oh. is the better duo? Oh, I'm, I'm going to go with uh, Sherlock and Watson. I, I like Batman by himself. All right. Okay. Abe. I, I like your question, so I'm going to kind of steal it. All right. What is um, your favorite robot, Wafflebot or the 80s robot from Muppets? That is a great question. <laughs> Unlike Aaron, who chose Wafflebot, I'd have to go with 80s robot because he's so outdated and he's so <laughs> funny. He drives a car and he has 56K dial-up. <laughs> I, like, I like how this is assuming you're assuming that Wafflebot's apparently like he's in the now. Apparently, that's like your logic in this. <laughs> he's not is so mainstream, Aaron. <laughs> no, but yeah, I like that he's talking about. I actually posed that question to Aaron like uh, during our Muppets podcast. Jordan, right back at you. Um, this is actually almost piggybacking off of your question too, which is, what would be a better movie, Tom Cruise and Ving Rhames as Sherlock and Watson, or Robert Downey oh, Jr. So... and Jude Law? As Batman and Robin, with British accents. Good lord, that, <laughs> success for both of them. I, I uh, think so too. <laughs> is Ving Rhames Batman or Robin? No, no, no. Ving um, Rhames is Sherlock and Watson. He's both of them. No, no, no. He's in that movie. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna go with that one. Tom Cruise and Ving Rhames as Sherlock and Watson. <laughs> yeah. Excellent choice. <laughs> I'd, I'd be giggling the whole time. Um, favorite. Hans Zimmer score. Uh, this is me? Yes. Uh, the Lion King. Ooh. Oh, yes. oh. Uh, every, everybody talks about the songs, fair enough, but it really is a gorgeous, gorgeous actual score. It really uh, is. Uh, I love the Pride Lands theme. I always have. Um, and I'm not going to start humming it because I'm sure I would butcher it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, and, that score and Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I think was Mencken, but I'm not sure, are probably my two favorite Disney scores. Yeah, when I rewatched Lion King yeah. when it came out on Blu-ray because I hadn't watched it in such a long time, I for I really forgot that Hans Zimmer did the score of that movie. And it, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Like that's that's such a great movie <laughs> overall. Um, Jordan, 
Um, yes. What would be franchise that you enjoy do you not want to see a sequel to? <laughs> we already said Born, so I'm not going to say that again. Um, oh, my God. Um, how about The Crow? <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. That, that. That is, that's actually a pretty excellent choice. <laughs> or Scream. That's yes. Oh, God, yeah. There's my choice right there. Scream. God. <laughs> I didn't even think of that one. After they after they copped out of <laughs> trying to do something new with four, like yeah, uh, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> point 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 to note: uh, the music in Hunchback of Notre Dame was Alan Menken. Yes, I would have known that for sure when I was in high school, but now not so much. I'm an old I'm an old man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on, that was no everybody, and now we're gonna move into some trailer talk. And rather than discuss a couple trailers like we tend to do every week. We're just going to talk about the Dark Knight Rises prologue, which, of course, was the big much ado over the course of the weekend since it played exclusively with certain prints of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and IMAX. And I guess just to set it up, the um, the first six minutes or six minutes of the Dark Knight Rises were shown in glorious giant IMAX framing, and this is basically the introduction of Bane as a character, much like how the Joker was introduced in The Dark Knight when that film came out in 2008. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, I, I know we all have thoughts on this, so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll just go how we went. I'll start with Abe again. Abe, what did you think of The Dark Knight Rises prologue? Uh, it, <laughs> compared to compared to the, the bank heist, I didn't see the bank heist in uh, 2008, but compared to the bank heist, I, I think the bank heist was way more like gritty in your face. Um, this trailer did want me to see more of the movie, of course. And uh, I think one of the best things about it is uh, I really like how Bane is a little bit more of like a conniving, you know, upfront character instead of like a Mountain Dew, like, you know, overzealous character of just, you know, chalked up on Mountain Dew. But I wasn't really super. Um, like involved, maybe that's the way that they wanted. Because I'm glad they didn't reveal anything about the the Batman or any of the storylines or what have you. But yeah, I mean, it was okay, not the greatest. I like the I like the use of the the wide shots for the plane flying and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I, I'm I wasn't like overly uh, impressed with it. But again, I, I did like that I wanted to see more, and that's probably just because I'm really excited for this movie in general. I actually like the uh, montage at the end more than the mm-hmm. um, actual six minutes. Um, that that was far more exciting for me, seeing all the like clips like Catwoman and and like the streets, like the the gangs of New York type <laughs> battle that was going on. And uh, but the the clip, you know, like it said. It's okay. It, it's definitely not as effective as the Joker. Um, I, I like how Bane doesn't have like this deep voice. It, um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. All right. I before guess. before I get to Scott, I just want to say you mentioned Gangs of New York, which now makes me think that Daniel Day Lewis should play the Mad Hatter at some point in the series. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scott, your thoughts on the prologue? Uh, I didn't really. I honestly, I didn't like it at all. Keeping in mind, I was not the biggest fan of the bank robbery prologue when I saw it as a standalone piece. I thought it was, you know, gorgeous to look at, but I thought, eh, it's just a bank robbery. That's nice. It works better in the context of the film as just the first six minutes that sets up, you know, a new threat and somewhat subtly sets up, you know, the the organized crime scene in Gotham. Having said that, as a standalone action sequence for this film, I thought the new prologue was kind of terrible. 
I had difficulty telling what was going on in the interior action beats. It was edited within an inch of its life. Uh, Nolan does have that problem sometimes. He gets very all green grassy. I'm watching this on a, you know, a hundred foot screen and I'm having trouble telling what's going on. It had, you know, another example of something that I thought was slightly a problem in the dark Knight, where he's so afraid of having, of getting an R rating that he cuts the violence so obtusely Mm. that you really can't see what's going on. I mean, you cut Mm -hmm. to a guy with a machine gun shooting and I have no idea who was hit. You know, the primary character other than Bane was a CIA agent played by, I might mispronounce his name, Aiden Gillian, First of all, he was terrible in it. He got and he did get the worst of the dialogue, but I'll get to that in a second. I don't know what happened to him. You know, bef- you know, he doesn't have a final scene. Obviously, the plane crashes, he dies, so be it. But he did, you know, the 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 film was so chaotically edited that I don't, you know, I, there was no last you know, acknowledgement of what happened to that character. Right. Um and as far as the dialogue, it was very on the nose. It felt like a bad kids cartoon, you know. You know, <laughs> who is Bane? Why does he wear that mask? If we take off that mask, will you die? Who cares? This crazy terrorist character that you know about, because you mentioned him, has infiltrated your plane, and you ask him questions as opposed to trying to kill him. All we need to know is there's a guy with a scary mask, and he's going to kill a bunch of CIA agents and crash a plane. That's all we need to know. But the you know the other problem is, and I'm not going to be the first person to say this, Bane's dialogue was very difficult to understand. Yeah. And he offers a lot of exposition in that sequence. So you have choppily edited action, very cheesy dialogue by the characters that we can understand, and plot exposition offered by a character that we can't understand. And when he did talk, when we can't understand what he said, it's one thing to not have a very deep brooding voice. That's fine. He sounded like Mr. Freeze in Batman and Robin. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, you know, all I was thinking was, you know, I used to see you. <laughs> um, he's very peppy and cheerful and, you know, the fire rises, uh, that, that doesn't strike fear into my heart. Um, and I have seen the regular trailer. I know not everybody has, he does have a line of, di- at least one line of dialogue there where he sounds more like a conventional villain. So it might've just been an ADR issue, but as an advertisement for the film, not only does it not make work as you know as a standalone piece, it honestly makes me worry that the film won't be good because it's so incompetent in Ooh. so many basic ways. Okay, I'm uh, I'm of two minds about the the prologue. I, it's it kind of on the one hand, it's it comes down to this is on the biggest screen possible and basically watching things in IMAX. I could watch you know just somebody reading a newspaper in this frame and be like oh this is awesome because of how large in scope it is and i can see everything but on the other hand yeah there's a big problem of context i think that's the main thing that affected my enjoyment of the prologue overall like because opposed to dark knight with that prologue which was with um i am legend when that came out yes um watching watching that like even though like you, yes you want to see more of the film and there's just you know there's there's only so much of it it i think it did a good job of just setting up the joker character and i think it it did so without having to having you need to know what else is going on in this movie there you 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 got a bank robbery scene that's pretty standalone it's just it's a bank robbery like you said but i mean you don't need more to it than that in this prologue with bane you have this mystery of who's this Bane character is. You have all these. You have all this stuff going on. He's in a. He's in a plane. They're trying to. They put, there's something about blood transfusion going on or something at some point. It was like that. That's how confusing it seemed to be in terms of the yeah the interior action that's going on in the plane once that all happens. And it's, 
it it honestly was just it was too much of there seems to be a lot of fill in the blanks that I, I can't fill in yet because I don't know what else is going on in this movie as opposed to Dark Knight where it's just like, oh, there's a bank robbery. Joker's here and he's a certain type of character because he has all these wild things going on in his plan. Meanwhile, you have Bane who seems to be a force to be reckoned with and I think that's for sure proven in terms of just the physicality that he seems to possess. It's, it's, it's clear that Tom Hardy's like, he's huge in this role. Like, that's... That's kind of, I was I was kind of impressed at how big he was. No, having seen him in Bronson and having seen him in Warrior, I guess too. It's mm. like, like this man seems to, much like I guess if Christian Bale can, he he knows how to go up and down and wait. So overall, no, I wasn't a huge fan of it. And yes, I've seen the trailer now, and the tra- even in the format that I've seen it in, it still got me kind of it got me it got me rising up to be like, yeah, I want to see Dark Knight right now, and now I have to wait. So I'm sad. Prologue didn't quite do for now. I do have something to say about the acting, for that matter. And um, not necessarily the acting, but the way dialogue, the way dialogue's presented. I think it's very similar to the way the Dark Knight bank robbery sequence dialogue was presented, where it's very comic booky and very kind of one line, one line exposition kind of. And I think it's very, it's done so on purpose almost. I can't say that it makes it better because of this, but it kind of, to me, it felt like. Yeah, I, to establish a character, it's just kind of it's kind of a surreal tone where it kind of represents a comic book, which Batman is a part of a comic, and that the same sense that they did in the in the Dark Knight with the Joker, where you have literally characters wearing masks saying, "Was this part of the plan?" No, some guy named the Joker did. It. Like it just has all this. <laughs> it, it, that annoyed me four years ago, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it kind of that it evoked the same thing to me in regard, yes. in regards to that. Mm-hmm. So that that's something that didn't seem like an issue to me as much. Right, okay. Any other thoughts on the Dark Knight Rises prologue? Uh, pretty much covered. Anything on my end? Any thoughts on the actual trailer? Just like some brief thoughts, maybe. In what regard? Uh, just, I don't know. Anything that is like, oh, I didn't know this was happening. Or... Okay, uh, I like the scene of um, Selena Kyle and uh, Bruce Wayne dancing. It reminds me of Batman Returns, and yes. I love Batman Returns. So that was definitely a positive for mm-hmm. me. Wasn't a big fan uh, of the mirror shot though, with the uh, Catwoman's whole entire getup on. I was like, uh, maybe. I like the Selena Kyle Batman Returns, you know, leather and yeah. stitches. Um, I thought it was a. It certainly was a better piece of marketing than the prologue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly can't compare to the first Dark Knight trailer. I mean, that, dear God. I, I remember watching the, the cruddy bootleg four years ago this weekend and not knowing that there was going to be a j- conventional trailer. And, you know, I, I wrote about this last year, but it just made me feel 12 years old again. Um, and now I find four years later that I'm nostalgic for my own nostalgia. Um, <laughs> In the year of nostalgia. Exactly. Oh. Uh, more or less, let's be honest. There's a reason the artist is, well, I'm not going to say I know you liked it more than I did, but whatever. Um <laughs> Um, sorry, back to Batman. Um, it's an oh, it's a good trailer. In that, what I like about it is that it looks. You know, this is the strength of the series. It looks so much unlike any other comic book franchise being made. It feels like a real movie in a real universe with real stakes and a certain heightened intensity that doesn't necessarily feel like a what you think of a, a Batman trailer. Yeah, I, um, I would agree with that. And whatever issues I have about, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, whatever issues I might have about it is still a pretty decent trailer that I perhaps hold to an unfair standard because of just how friggin' awesome the first Dark Knight trailer was four years ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And I miss the theme music. 
it shows up right at the end. Yeah, and that's goosebumps. in a weird way. My fa- yeah, you get goosebumps, but you, you need that music in the trailer. That that's the fun of seeing se- trailers to sequels is you get goosebumps hearing the familiar music in the context of new footage. I like uh, I like how over the years because when the when Batman Begins came out, like I I was a I was a fan of the movie because I, I love everything Batman, but yeah. um, we don't talk about Batman Robin, but um, the <laughs> I could kind of defend it. But it was. Better. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I think I, I tried to kind of defend it in your voice the other week. Actually, when Batman <laughs> came up, just because you made some good points about what the actual story is versus what the movie yeah, was. But exactly. um, with the when Batman Begins came out and it didn't have the Danny Elfman theme, which was obvious because it's a reboot, so it was a new, you know, it's a fresh start to the thing. I was, it's kind of like, well, the theme's not very memorable compared to Danny Elfman's his Batman theme, which is of course then used in the Batman animated series. But yes. When when Dark Knight came out, something about the maybe just because that movie, as we've said, is just freaking awesome. <laughs> like it's it's just that the music just is just it just it's great from Hans Zimmer and, J, and James Newton Howard. Like it's just it's just a fantastic score, <laughs> and it's just yeah. like it just it just sends chills down the spine. The the only problem with it is it's not very easy to hum. I I kind of do though. Even I I That's the best I can do. It's just it's the same like like Inception isn't easy to hum. Yet everyone seems to just know exactly what to key into when you think of Inception's music. Yep, exactly. The Fufuzella. Hell. All right, let's let's move on now. Finally, to to our well, our first movie review for Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. Abort. Ethan, what happened in the Kremlin? It was a setup. The Russians are classifying this as an undeclared act of war. The blame points to you and your team. The president has initiated ghost protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. So what happens now? Your mission, should you choose to accept it. The secretary is dead. The four of us are all that remains of the IMF. No safe house, no support or extraction. Everyone connected with this man is an asset with valuable information. We come back with our target, or we don't come back. And uh, how do you propose that we do that? We take him out. Yeah, we take him out, but, you know, discreetly. Discreetly. All right, so that was a little bit of the trailer for Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, the live-action feature film debut of director Brad Bird of Incredibles fame, among other things. And, um, yeah, this newest entry in the Mission Impossible franchise finds Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt once again on another... Seemingly impossible mission as he and his team, um, played by Paula Patton, Simon Pegg, and new new analyst Jeremy Renner, uh, team up to, well, they, they all get, basically IMF gets framed for destroying the Kremlin, and which, which activates ghost protocol, which means that the government has basically disavowed all of IMF and they need to, well, they need to figure out what's went wrong, which is, of course, the, the product of a terrorist code named Cobalt, who is it has some Russian nuke codes, it seems, and there's a, just a lot of spy stuff happening, and they need to stop nukes from going off. That's that's pretty much the plot right there. Um, yeah, so let's just let's get right into it because we got a lot of things to talk about. So, 
Start with Abe once again. What did you think of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol? Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol is a solid, solid movie. Uh, I particularly enjoyed all the gadgets that they employed, um, especially like the contact lenses, the printer case, and the hallway screen. Um, I think that uh, the characters were on par with the other films. Uh, there were some cheesy lines, yeah, but I mean, for the most part, I think what this film really did well was it centered around that these guys are spies and they're doing spy things and they don't really get away from it with like, you know, love story here and love story there um, or, you know, side missions here and side missions there. It's really about finding Cobalt and trying to stop him from destroying uh, or I guess starting World War III. Um, I think that it was kind of cheesy in terms of the the Russians being kind of really Russian, I think. Uh, I don't know how that would be taken to others, but it's just they seemed a little bit like, you know, movie-style Russian where they just like drinking potato vodka. But um, I think the other thing that I didn't like uh, as much was I, I kind of wanted maybe some more development of Cobalt as uh, what his motives may have been and things of that nature. But for the most part, well-choreographed action sequences, big fan of Jeremy Renner um, and, you know, him doing his stuff in this film. Uh, and, oh, again, great shots in Dubai. It was just a solid film. I really liked it a lot as a spy film and as a standalone film in the franchise. Uh, probably, probably, I did enjoy the John Woo one. So probably, like, up there in terms of, like, either one or two uh, of the Mission Possible franchise. I, I loved it. I, I think it's the best one since the first one. I still haven't made up my mind if I like if if it's better than the first one, but I'm definitely gonna see it again. I I felt the humor worked perfectly, um, but but which is always kind of a fine line. But I think it works splendidly with this one. Uh, the the camera work was superb. Uh, I'll I'll say more later on. <laughs> Move on. Uh, first of all, I very, very, very much enjoyed this picture. It may or may not be my favorite of the series behind the first one, although they're such different films. It's almost unfair to compare them. It's apples to oranges. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, too, actually enjoyed the second film. Mm -hmm. uh, we might be the only ones on Earth that still admit that. I mean, all four of us. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, it, just, it's, it was a kind of just big screen sheer showmanship that you just don't see anymore, even in would-be, you know, big-scale entertainments. Um, the stunts were fantastic, and they were engaging on a, I don't want to say an emotional level, it's not like you were cringing or crying or anything, but because there was so much emphasis of how difficult this stuff was, and, you know, how scared these characters were to be doing it, it added that level of excitement and, and I don't want to say comedy but it was funny watching tom cruise hold his breath before he jumped out the window or you know and certainly jeremy renner's dear you know his bit with uh his, his big third act moment um yeah that works yes and it's 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 very funny it makes him very in engaging to an audience i did have a few problems with it mainly i felt that paula Patton was sort of she was sort of encumbered, encumbered, is that the right word? Encumbered with a, a needless, you know, crisis and conscience backstory that sort of came into the second and third act. Um, and she was borderline incompetent for much of the second and third act. You know, the, the unfortunately, a lot of the movie went on as it did because she screwed up, basically, mm. for lack of a better term. Um, 
I felt that there's a scene in the third act where she has to do... She has to I, use her sex appeal. Yes, yeah, she has to use her feminine wiles. And on one hand, I'm kind of glad that they actually presented a fairly attractive female character as not being good at that kind of thing. Because that, that's different. <laughs> you know, she may look like Paula Patton, but she can't just seduce anyone with the drop of a hat because, you know... On the other hand, frankly, I found the, the you know, I don't know his name. He's the guy from Slumdog Millionaire in 24. Thank you. It was almost racially discomforting how, you know, it was sort of the sleazy foreigner that was sort of <laughs> off-putting. Uh, it it, it towed a line there. Um, I also felt that the film, you know, it was almost a procedural. You know, this is how they do the job. This is them planning the job. This is them doing the job. And while I liked that there was, as you guys said, a lack of, of side garbage, there was no romantic interest. There was no, you know, what have you. It also... There really was no real, I don't want to say point, because that's too strong, but let me just say, the first film was about Ethan Hunt, he's young, he's naive, he discovers the dark side of espionage. The second film was Ethan Hunt dealing with, arguably, you know, the evil Ethan Hunt, you know, his his evil doppelganger. The third film, of course, which I don't like as much as, much as other people do, but it, it at least tried to tell an interesting story of Ethan Hunt's pers- you know, professional life you know, making an absolute mess of his personal life. This film really didn't have any, you know, underlying theme or or reason to, you know, it was just another episode of a weekly show, hmm. of a weekly show. And that's okay, because it was a very, 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 very good episode. But if I had to pick out one big flaw, it was that it really didn't have a lot of substance to its spectacle. But God, the spectacle was fantastic. From beginning to end, it was creative, it was well acted. It was well performed. It looked real. I'm going to assume it was all practical because it looked all practical. And it was edited in a way that you could actually tell what was going on, unlike certain six-minute prologues that preceded the film. <laughs> um, and the IMAX footage was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a way, it certainly, you know, obviously it's the first film to do this since Transformers. And it had a lot more IMAX footage than Transformers 2 did. But it, it, it once again shows that, you know, IMAX is the future of, you know, big time, you know, major franchise filmmaking. 3D was a distraction, but IMAX is where it's going to be. And it just, in terms of sheer showmanship, it's one of the best big scale action films I've seen in several years. Well, uh, yeah, that's... All of this, all of this, you guys have said is what, is what I what I agree with as well. This movie, I'm just gonna because you guys have made out the big points already. I'm just gonna jump straight to something that is ridiculous. Tom Cruise is hanging outside the tallest building in the world because he's Tom Cruise, and he's like, "I'm gonna do this because I want this movie to be amazing," and he's done so because that scene is amazing. Watching <laughs> him in Dubai hanging outside that giant tower, and I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes to like footage of him and most likely one of a stunt double but he does so many of his own stunts it's ridiculous but just him but and the way that scene said it, like there's a, you everyone knows in the trailer that he's going to be hanging outside this building at some point and doing something that's impossible on a mission but watch, <laughs> watching 
Doing something Sorry. impossible on a mission. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> watching watching how that scene's set up, how it plays, how the IMAX cameras are used to capture the sheer sense of height and tension involved in what he's doing, and how it's all framed, and how it all comes together, and how it's fun. Like, it's you're on the edge of your seat, and you're also having a blast watching it. It's ridiculous that this scene exists, but it happened because Tom Cruise is like, he's a producer, and he said, I want to make an amazing Mission Impossible action scene. And just watching this centerpiece sequence of the film is just absolutely fantastic. Now, with that said, yes, we've all seen this in IMAX because we talked about the prologue, which is the only place you can see it, and the giant real IMAXs. And how Brad Bird manages to like use all of those sequences is fantastic. Like, there's about 30 minutes of footage shot in IMAX cameras, and it looks marvelous. Like, this is a movie that you go to see on that screen. Like, just like Hugo is a movie you go and see in 3D, Mission Impossible is a movie you go and see in IMAX. It's completely worth it. Now, with that said, even if you don't see it in IMAX, just see this movie because it's just a hell of a lot of fun. It's just a great action movie to watch. Like, it's, yes, it's very straightforward. That's the main, that's the main issue I have as well. It, there's no, it doesn't have the same twists and turns that kind of Mission Impossible 1 kind of had where there's, you know, there's a sense of unexpected coming on. There are turns in the story because, I mean, it's not a completely predictable movie, but I mean, it's not, it doesn't have that same kind of mysterious allure that like a real twisty espionage thriller would have it's more of a straight up action movie that happens to feature a lot of spies in it but i did appreciate a lot of the ties to the the tv series as well of course it's not like the tv show because that's a hour-long show from the 60s opposed to a big blockbuster tom cruise spectacle but it had a lot of the teamwork which was something that made the first one and the third one to an extent kind of very very welcome it involved every character um, it made use of their specialties, even though they're not like really well-defined characters, but it made good use of everybody. So you always had a sense of who everyone was, what they're doing, and how they're affecting this, the action going on. And it had a lot of, like Abe said, it had a lot of really cool gadgets. Mm-hmm. It, had, it had just all these cool things that make a Mission Impossible movie worthwhile. And yeah, it all came together to make a great, great action movie that's plenty accessible because there's no real ties to the... Beyond some character details, uh, there's no real ties to the other entries that you really need to know to like go into this movie and see. But it all it all works out really, really well. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. To piggyback on what Scott said, I mean, one of the things that I, I what he said is true is I didn't really pick up on was everything looks not green screened. <laughs> So yeah. it's very it's very practical looking, and I didn't really pick up on that. But now that I'm thinking back on it, yeah, it's. Yeah, you really don't get the sense that anything was computer generated, or they did it with, you know, maybe maybe some of the sandstorm stuff. The sandstorm stuff, yeah. but even then, you're just you're not even really thinking oh, about it. Like, yeah, I was like, he's got to go get that guy. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it was very well done. I mean, I really enjoyed, um, you know, how how good this movie was. I mean, I think one of the other things I really wasn't too keen on was like, why is Ving Rhames on the in this movie? So. I mean, just maybe for added familiar facts, but that was probably it. There's a lot of error in the um, in how in things. There's a lot of things that went wrong for the team, which was kind of like enjoyable in a way because it just it made the things all the more tense, but also kind of it, it provided there was a lightheartedness to the spy activities in right. the wake of you know nuclear disasters going on, and I kind of admired a lot of that, especially in the form of Simon Pegg. 
who was doing he was having like he made this movie like a blast to watch like he was a, and it was great to see him like in shape again after watching paul where he's really punchy <laughs> movie i was like oh okay, simon shapes like he's like simon Pegg, like he you know he, he did a little he did a little workout apparently to be on the imf team i, I kind of i was i appreciated the field thing. agent again yeah, but he, uh, yeah, he he was a lot of fun. Jeremy Renner, I like Jeremy Renner a lot in this movie actually because he wasn't playing kind of like the the rebellious like I'm gonna do it my way kind of thing. He was actually kind of he had a lot of fun pl- bouncing off the rest. Well, he of the was team. close to being a dick when he had the briefcase. <laughs> he was, and then he and then he, when he had the briefcase. figures it out. Yeah, or when he had to uh, embark upon his his soliloquy of I have things from the past I need to tell you. But I can't. You should have sang. <laughs> Here is my secret. (laughs) Would um, here's a question, just a random one. If it was in the, if it was, if this movie came out in the mid '90s, would Halle Berry have played the Paula Patton part? I hope not. Yeah, I hope not either. (laughs) No way. Yeah. I I will say that you know, kudos to the Mission Impossible franchise. You have four films, two of which have African American female leads, and at no point does anyone comment on the color of their skin. Ooh, good point. Mm -hmm. Um. That's, I mean, that's, you know, two for four is unprecedented. Um, something you guys mentioned about, you know, Tom Cruise, I just, I, what I loved about this movie is to a certain extent, it was sort of his get off my lawn moment. <laughs> you know, it's the sheer just, you know, I'm going to, you know, you may think I'm crazy in real life, but I'm going to make the best gosh darn action picture you've ever seen. And you will love me again because you will be so entertained. And I don't care if I die of a heart attack from all this running. You will love me again because I make better movies than they do. So, you know, go buzz off. <laughs> I was I was happy to see that it, something occurred to me when I was rewatching the original Mission Impossible movies or the, the first ones and uh, he has short hair in the first and third and long hair in the second and fourth one yes and i was kind of thinking uh, i hope it wasn't a star trek situation where every other one's like really good <laughs> didn't happen didn't happen this time around i was happy to see the long hair work and not have too much crazy john woo action which i do like that movie but not in the same way as the others i, I love that the character also um of Ethan that wasn't invincible like he really got her like, there yeah there were both, yeah. I, like, I like i like seeing everyone hesitate in this movie there yes was, that's yeah. what it was the hesitation thank you mm-hmm. and like there were some visceral punches he took like whether it's like throwing the car off the the dock or jumping through the window like oh man <laughs> you never you, made it easy yeah like there's a there's an escape sequence where he has to kind of get out of a situation where he's already been injured and he really has to hesitate before he like kind of makes a decision of how to go about a scene. Yeah. yeah. And, and then and even I, like toward he gets beat up in this movie. I'll just put it that right. way. And that it that's not overlooked. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean when he's like trying to hobble away, that's that you know, yeah, all, dude, little, yeah, that, all the details. Yeah. Yeah. Um one of the one of the things I liked is that they you know, the, the, he's implicated for the bombing, and he has a, 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 a Russian agent after him, and they don't make that guy the bad guy. You you almost, you know, you're not rooting for him so much, but you don't want him to be humiliated at the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a nice little touch that I appreciate it. Um, as far as the action, you're right. I, I liked that it was, you know, real fistfights and real chases, and... You know, I this is pure speculation, but I honestly think, you know, we're getting toward the toward the end of the fantasy dominating everything. You know, we're running out of comic books to adapt. You know, the the teen, kid, young adult fantasy literature genre basically, you know, opened and died with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings with the exception of Twilight and Narnia. 
you know, possibly the I, Hunger Games. We'll see. We'll see. You're right. You're right. The Hunger Games as well. But even that's somewhat more realistic. Um, that's basically, you know, Battle Royale for kids. Yeah. Um, and I think this film, and to a certain extent, Fast Five, which I also enjoyed quite a bit, I, yeah. was sort of a return to, you know, real action where you can see the sweat and the blood and the tears and the sand with, you know, actual fist fights and actual chases. And I think if this film is as big of a hit as I think it's going to be, especially after this weekend, you know, it could, I don't want to say a game changer because that's, you know, a bit overblowing it, but I think it could be a stepping stone and a return to where the big films are practical earthbound action pictures again. So you're saying yeah. Expendables 2 is going to be great, right? If it's great, then I don't know. Um, maybe that was a warning shot. But no, I, I have a cockamamie theory, and I don't want to get digressed too much, that every 12 years there's there's a shift in the kind of blockbuster movies we see. 77 brought Star Wars, 89 brought Batman, 2001 brought Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, and mm-hmm. something's going to happen in 2013. And I'm kind of, you know, I think it's going to be sort of a return to, you know, sort of human versus human on earth action pictures, but you know, costing a gajillion dollars. But I will stop now because we have a limited amount of time. Uh, Matrix, Matrix four will be crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in the desert. Um, I really, I really enjoyed the, uh, Jesus. I really enjoyed the, uh, the opening title sequence in this film. Yeah. And you can totally tell it's Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you had the, uh, you had the Giacchino score, doing the you know the original mission impossible theme and mixed with kind of the it had it had an opening title sequence which was really cool where you have like and it did it the same way like the first mission impossible even the series where it kind of shows it kind of sets you up for what's going to happen throughout this movie where it kind of shows you like kind of glimpses of things and how it how that ties into like having that theme and having a fuse being lit i just thought was really really cool and it was all imax and stuff it was like yeah this is there's a lot of the whole cold open of the movie was actually really cool. I really dug the mm-hmm. how Tom Cruise kind of how he sets himself up as a character in this movie, and even the the, the opening opening scene where, where Sawyer's from Lost is in this movie. I didn't even know that, but he's like in, Josh Holloway is in this movie, and it's like oh that's cool. He even has his own little spy gadget that was like pretty kick ass. So I was like really happy with the whole opening of the movie. It just set me up and just much it just kept me kept me happy kept me happy throughout the, the, the remaining runtime because it's just such a fun movie to watch uh my my only problem with the title sequence and i felt the same way about the first mission possible because it did the same thing as i'm thinking okay you know basically i was worried that it was going to spoil me that yeah. the images they were going to choose <laughs> even if they weren't intending to be spoilers that by insinuation like oh okay a, a sequence like that's going to be in there ergo i know they're doing this this and this but to my surprise I completely forgot that sequence even existed 10 minutes in the film. That's yeah. That's where I was on that because when, when I was watching it, I was like, Oh, like, cause I just watched the first mission to possible. And I was like, wow. If I, I know every, this, this reveals a lot of key elements. If I yeah. were to have seen this movie already and, but watching, watching ghost protocol, it's fun saying ghost protocol, by the way, I haven't harked upon how much it sounds like a Tom Clancy novel, mission impossible ghost protocol, but um, <laughs> w- w- watching the, watching the opening title sequence, I, I was kind of like, oh, this is like the first again, so I hope it doesn't spoil things. But I'm like, well, this is actually just really cool, just kind of seeing glimpses of things. And I and I didn't really remember much of what kind of where the scenes went when the actual movie was playing versus what was laid out in the opening titles. So yeah, it was yeah. just a quality quality way to set up the film. 
What did you guys think of Cobalt? The, uh, the I, was, yeah, I was about to get to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Michael, Michael, Michael Nyquist. <laughs> Michael Nyquist, who was in the um, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Swedish versions, the those films. He stars as the the villain in this film. And yeah, I think uh, Abe. I think you brought this up. He didn't. You didn't really know his motivations. Yeah, he said, didn't really get too much. You got to know him too much, and uh, he didn't really develop as a character. But yeah, I would say he's pretty much yeah. a stock. He's a stock villain. He doesn't. He doesn't <laughs> do much. It's very. It's almost like it almost plays to kind of. Of course, it's the Russians. Like, it doesn't really care. It doesn't really care that who, what this villain is. It's just, yeah, he has nuke codes. Stop him. Like, that's... And, like, it was... I guess it was nice to see, like, oh, this is... It's him from Dragon Tattoo, and he's coming to be in big Tom Cruise blockbuster. That's kind of neat. But, yeah, he didn't really have much to do beyond look intimidating, which I think he did look pretty intimidating. And, he, you know, he, he held his own in the scenes that required him to. But, yeah, it didn't really require the most, the most you know, acting. <laughs> I, I did think it was funny that... But that... Jeremy Renner, I guess his character, pretty much knew every face on Earth. <laughs> there's like two or three scenes. Like there, there's a scene where he spots somebody on a surveillance camera and instantly knows who that is. He's an analyst. Like, <laughs> that, that, Jack Ryan would be impressed. And then there's, <laughs> and there's of course, the pivotal scene where Tom Cruise uses his artistic abilities to communicate. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is which is a wonderful, absurd but great moment. <laughs> Uh, and again, it's like, oh, I recognize that thing that you just drew. I know exactly who that is. Here's his address and social security number. It's like, it's, it's crude, but if I had to guess, I would say that's a terrorist. <laughs> well, it's either the terrorist guy or a diplomat. I'm not sure which one. Let's rough him up anyway, just to be sure. Did anyone else kind of notice or kind of note that there was kind of a, almost a, not, not very self-referential, but there's kind of acknowledgement of how impossible this movie was like they kind of had a not necessarily tongue-in-cheek but it seemed very lighthearted. it didn't seem to it didn't take itself seriously necessarily it was easily the lightest of the four films yes and yeah. with the exception of a somewhat tossed away subplot involving you know an innocent bystander and his family being murdered there really wasn't much hard violence um, above the incredibles yeah 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 and even the you know, the Kremlin gets bombed, and you're you know I was sort of listening for a body count, and they basically say a bunch of people are injured. They don't say anybody was killed, yeah. which I find hard to believe, but whatever. Uh, maybe when I watch it again, I'll you know have the subtitles on, so I'll be catching for stuff like that. Um, so it, it it was a very light movie, which is why I think Simon Pegg worked better this time around than the third film, which was a much darker picture. Right. Um, yeah. it was a it was you basically yeah. had. Philip Seymour Hoffman threatening to rape and murder Tom Cruise's wife, and then you have Simon Pegg going, ha ha, I'm being funny, like on Alias. Um, <laughs> but this time around, because it was a you know a lighter film, it didn't feel as out of place. Yeah, and I, I think that Jordan put it put it really well, which is uh, you know the jokes are placed uh, pretty well. You know they're they're pretty well paced, and they're not overly ha ha. That's really funny. It's just more of like oh yeah, good joke. Yeah. There's, because I can't spoil this at all, but there's a moment at the end which is absolutely amazing in terms of the line that's delivered, and then the fact that it's called back upon like minutes yes, later. Which, yes. you know, the, the moments like that are just so indicative of the film's sheer entertainment value. You know, moments that have you cheering on the inside that so many big franchise directors just either don't know how to do or don't bother to do. I mean, I like Thor. But is there really any moment in Thor that just has you, you know, wanting to stand up and applaud? Um, or, you know, I think Peter Jackson really is one of the only people that really, that knows how to do this. You know, that's one of the reasons the Lord of the Rings films work so well, is they have moments of just, I know I keep coming back to this, showmanship. It's like, not only is it a great scene, but it's delivered so well that it that it's just wonderful. 
it's you know why you go to these kind of movies. That, yeah, I would credit mm-hmm. that to, to Brad Bird. Really. Yeah, he, he really is a master of the craft, and he knows how to you know reel in the audience, and he knows when to let them go. I mean, but the the people I saw with everyone was on the edge of their seat, and when uh, when he's on the building and. They, they, he has that little joke with Jeremy Renner. He's like, no, sh-. like, yeah. The audience kind of like let out this sack <laughs> of relief. They're like, oh, ha, 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 ha. And then they're back again, just holding their breath. And it's perfect. It's such a, just an amazing film in terms of, of spectacle. I think Brad Bird did a fantastic job here, and I'm looking. I'm looking forward to seeing the next movies that he does because I know he's been wanting to make like the, his 1901 earthquake movie. Like that's like that's like something like a passion project basically that he wants to make. And I know like, like basically he took Mission Impossible seemingly just to have you know a movie under his belt to kind of show that he can you know he can do something like this. And clearly he's proven he can because man, this movie was fantastic to watch. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in his future career as both a live action director and possibly you know. I'd hope his return to to animated features as well. I mean, he has Incredibles, Iron Giant, and Ratatouille under his belt, and that's nothing. This, those are great movies on their own, right there. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what what he does in the future. Now, it also makes me curious about what Andrew Stanton will be able to achieve with John Carter, because so far it hasn't been the. Uh, it's not. It's not. It's not the. It's not the movie that you're like, man. I can't wait to see this right now. Right. I'm still intrigued by it, but the trailers haven't like proven me to be like. And even the footage that I got to see, like it just hasn't proven to me to be like, man, this, this is gonna be something super special. Right. Like, so I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that not just Brad Bird's the only person that emerges from Pixar as a live action director who can really pull something off. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, and I, I had hopes for the second trailer, the second full length trailer for uh, John Carter, but I was like, uh, still uncertain on the fence. Yeah, it's very underwhelming. Like that looks like it costs three hundred dollars, not three hundred million dollars. <laughs> and so there's another thing about Mission Impossible: the money looks like it's on the screen. Oh my yeah. god! I don't, I don't, I don't know the budget, but if you would tell me four hundred, I would say okay, worth it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's not four hundred for the record. Yeah, there are some, um, there are some crazy set pieces in this movie. Like, yeah, some awesome looking cars too. Yeah, yeah like what did that beam, that BMW we had, whatever that thing was? Yeah. it's like a Bond car. I guess they're spies, so it makes sense. But still. <laughs> All right, so um, let's move on because we still have to talk about Sherlock. So let's uh, and box office. Oh my God, there's so many to talk about. So let's uh, do our rating. Every week we try to rate the films that we review, but not with a letter, or a number. We kind of say when you should go and see this movie, and I think our choices are one. probably pretty clear. So yeah, let's, <laughs> let's go with that. Let's go with that. Let's go with that right now. I'm gonna count to three. We'll just say where you should see this movie. One, two, three. IMAX. IMAX. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then again on Blu-ray. <laughs> there you go. Can't, yeah, can't. On a hundred foot screen, yeah, uh, yeah, on yes. the biggest IMAX possible. That's where you should go and see yeah. this movie. You can watch it on your iPhone, you know, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, cool. Yeah, get the ultraviolet. Watch it on Flickster on your your um, Droid. Um, <laughs> watch the camera bootleg. It's no big deal. The prologue and then seep into Mission Impossible. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely go, definitely go and see Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol on the biggest IMAX screen possible. And don't just go to see Dark Knight Rises. Even I mean, we've already kind of expressed our opinions on that. But even if like you're just like yeah, I need to see Batman. This movie is completely worth it on its own. Like this movie did not need Dark Knight Rises prologue to like sell no. it. It's it's its own thing. And it's not doing as well as it's doing for box office because of the Dark Knight prologue. Yeah. I'll get to that in a second. But yeah. now for uh, now, let's do a, let's do a quick retro review for Mission Impossible just so we can do that really quick. So uh, any movies you guys thought of while we were while you know in relation to Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, start with eight. 
Mm, I mean, obviously, just like the Mission Impossible stuff. But yeah, definitely like The Incredibles, mostly because uh, that uh, that opening sequence with Sawyer, that was pretty incredible-ish. Mission Incredible. <laughs> Jordan? <laughs> yeah, uh, The Incredibles. It's like a live-action Incredibles. Scott? Honestly, I was reminded in a, in a good way of the things I liked in all three previous Mission Impossible movies. You have the... You know, the wild, outrageous, somewhat big screen epic action of the second film. You have the sheer manic intensity of Tom Cruise from the third film. You know, so much running. Oh my um, God, he's running. I just <laughs> I, I, watching that movie again. I haven't watched it in a while. He is running throughout that movie. Like, yes. he, must, he must like log five miles within the film. Um, and you know, the, the, to a certain extent, the the we've been framed plot of the first film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny in the trailer that you played, you know, what happened in the Kremlin? I want to say the same thing that happened in Prague. Where is Henry Zerny? We need to talk to him again. Uh, and why the heck haven't they brought him back for just something? He was so much fun the first film. He, he plays a lot. Uh, like, he's in, like, um, was he in Patriot Games? Like, there, yes. A clear and Yes. Yeah, yeah. He, he, play, he plays that kind of, that commanding guy. That I'll tell of, you, after those two movies, I thought he was going to be huge, but then he, he just disappeared. He was even in the A-Team last year, too. He popped up as, like, the same basic role. As a red herring. Because yeah. I, I saw him, I was like, oh, bad guy. <laughs> just, he needed the work. I, uh, I thought of Salt, actually, from last year with Angelina Jolie because it had a it, – it's they're, they're different films, but they had a – no, I know the exact reason why. I was like, why did I think of Salt? It, it's because the stakes of the film, they were kind of ludicrously high in the very classic Bond sense, which I kind of appreciated, where, like, there's nukes. That's the that's the goal. It's just so outlandish. It's like we yeah. have to stop nukes from happening. And I really I kind of I pre, I appreciated going. I'd rather see that than another like you know, something something like just kind of minuscule and not really noteworthy. Like I I need a certain amount of money for based on principles or something like that. I just like the the over the top. I'm nuking the country because why not? <laughs> yeah. I'm evil. I'm a literally. That's his reason. <laughs> that's his. reason. <laughs> well, actually, you're right. It reminded me of the the Roger Moore, Sean Connery, James Bond films, both in that it was a very standalone picture without a lot of continuity, and it did the classic. And I, you know, Ernest Trevano Blofeld should have patented in the 1960s that we're going to make the world kill each other by blame, doing one thing to blame this country, and then another thing to blame that country, and then they're going to go to war, and then everyone's going to die, and then I'm going to rule whatever's left, because it never works. But they've been doing it for 40 years. Yeah, someone should be getting paid for these ideas. Yes. I also had a, I had a lot of Modern Warfare 3 coming in on, on this film, just based on, like, the giant set pieces and their sandstorm. There's a, anyone that's played Modern Warfare 3 and watches Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol will be like, hmm, there's a lot of similar scenes here. Anyway, um, let's move on to, well, what are we doing? Oh, we're going to do, we're going to have a break because we've been talking for quite a while, so I'm literally just going to. Let us go for a second, and I'll just play some random music. Maybe something that has the word sandstorm in the title. <laughs> yeah, I went there. Adjectives on the type writer he moves his words like a prize fighter the frenzied pace of the mind inside the cell the man on the street might just as well be the man on the street might just as well the man on the street might just as well be
Sit all, sit all, sit all, sit all, sit all, say somebody. You got to say it all. And now we're back, and now we're going to move into the box office results, and oh boy, I'm, of course I'm going to let Scott take this one because he is our favorite pundit. He's right a resident here. expert. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I'll just, oh, no, I have to do the results first because um, last week we, yeah, last week we of course made our predictions for what we thought Sherlock would do in its opening weekend, and uh, I guess 67, Abe? I wasn't here. Oh, you were here last <laughs> week. So, uh, yeah, Mark Hoban guessed 71, Alan Aguilera guessed 70, and our friend Adam Gentry guessed 35. So, um, yeah, we'll let we'll, uh, we, uh, have a little little talk with Adam. We'll, we'll let that roll, whatever. Abe will figure out a way to edit that conversation in later. That's like editing right it. now. It, it appears that uh, Sherlock apparently came in at 40 million, which is right around what you guessed. Do you remember what you guessed, sir? 35. Yep, and that's shockingly very close. And since we are... Is it, stick- shocking, is it shocking that Sherlock performed so poorly or shocking that I was that close? I'm, I'm not that you're that close. We'll get Ouch. to... And Scott Scott Mendelson is going to go over in detail what happened at the box office this weekend because it's pretty... There's a lot, a lot of act, a lot of interesting activities, so we'll get to that. But um, we just wanted we wanted to bring you in just for you to claim your victory, sir. So congratulations! Congratulations! You know what? Adam. I've got I happen to have a miniature American flag right here, and I am planting it in the middle of the keyboard, and I claim this victory for <laughs> gentries everywhere. <laughs> Great! Congratulations! Good, good yeah. <laughs> Thank you, sirs. Okay. But yeah, so that's ooh, that's. Those predictions were wrong because I'm going to let Scott take it away at this point and go over the box office for this week. Uh, wow, was my thoughts on Friday evening as the numbers were coming in. Um, there has been talk for a while that somehow the domestic box office is in this big slump, that people aren't going to the movies anymore, and Hollywood is doomed. And a lot of it is nonsense. You just have smaller films that aren't opening to blockbuster numbers because they're smaller films. And the whole, oh, this week added a small weekend total, cumulative total, was smaller than last year's same weekend. Again, you know, different movies are going to do different numbers. You know, the first few months of 2011 were kind of down from 2010 because you weren't, you didn't have overlap from, you didn't have overlap from Avatar or, uh, you know, and then you didn't have Alice in Wonderland or How to Train Your Dragon. But my goodness, these, you know, I was expecting about 75, 80 million from Sherlock too. Yeah. Maybe obviously I was wrong and I, I try not to blame the movie when I'm wrong. Uh, I was expecting, you know, something close to 50 for Alvin and the Chipmunks three. I certainly wasn't expecting, you know, an opening 6 million higher than Yogi bear. Uh, and I certainly wasn't expecting Sherlock Holmes two to open to less than Tron. Hmm. Uh, yes. I will say that both films, Sherlock and Alvin and the Chipmunks three, you know, went without 3d. Which is interesting because when they were both announced two years ago, they were or year and a half ago, they were both going to be 3D releases. Yet, sure enough, this weekend when they came out, neither of these films went out in 3D, which may or may not mean something in terms of how 
you know, studios are looking at 3D as sort of a catch-all, you know, ticket price boost. Um, having said that, Sherlock Holmes 2 did $40 million. Um, the first film opened over Christmas weekend two years ago, did $62 million. That was against the second weekend of Avatar, which did $75 million. So you would think Sherlock Holmes 2 and Out of the Chipmunks 3 would have at least comparable, if not bigger, opening weekends than the previous installments because they didn't have Avatar to contend with. But as you know, both opening weekends were a lot lower. Um, is this real evidence that there really is a slump? I don't know. We'll see how well the films do over Christmas weekend. Movies that open the weekend before Christmas have notoriously long legs because you have your three-day weekend that then parlays into about two weeks of pure everybody's off of work and everybody's off of vacation time. So basically every day is a weekend day. Every day is Saturday until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's possible that it, you know, it, it really is the movie stupid, as I like to say. And I'm not the only one that says this. With Sherlock Holmes 2, and ironically, we discussed this the first time I was on this show when we were discussing the first Sherlock Holmes trailer in that by casting a character actor as Moriarty, you lost a huge, huge chunk of what could have been the marketing campaign for the sequel, which is look at who we got to play Moriarty, and we're going to base the entire marketing campaign around, hey, look, it's Brad Pitt as Professor Moriarty, or it's uh, you know Daniel Day-Lewis as Professor Moriarty. Uh, because you add Jared Harris as Moriarty, a very good actor who I think did very well with the material he was given, you didn't have a, you know, you had nothing new to offer. It was just, hey, look, it's Sherlock Holmes again. It's Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr. bantering again, but with lots of gunfire this time. And that's really the, you know, that was what the marketing campaign was. You know, you might have noticed, you might have not. Almost every piece of print media had Sherlock Holmes and or Watson carrying a gun. Uh, and that was really the only new thing is the promise of more frantic action. And I think this might just be a case where audiences liked the first film a lot. You know, it, it, it opened to 62 million, top 200 domestic, and then did, uh, you know, 500 million worldwide. But it wasn't something that they automatically wanted to see a sequel to unless there was a hook. And because you didn't have anyone, you know, any interesting actor, and I don't want to insult Jared Harris, but let's be honest, he's not a movie star. You didn't have that hook that to get people excited about another one. The same thing with uh, The Chipmunks 3, which did $23 million, which is shockingly low considering the first film opened to about 44 million on the same weekend two years ago against the 77 million dollar debut of i am legend uh the second film had hey look we've got the chipettes uh and you had the the trailer that basically hey look not only do we have the chipettes they're singing beyonce single ladies isn't that neat we can argue about whether that's neat or not. I'm on the it's, but you know for for <laughs> the generic family moviegoer that was pretty neat um, and this film, I guess they get shipwrecked. Uh, uh, it, it seemed to be a much quieter advertising campaign this time around. They get they got shipwrecked, to be fair. Yes, they got shipwrecked, <laughs> and David Cross is still there. Um, <laughs> I, I and you know it's 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 a gig. I, I don't I don't begrudge him. You know he he took some grief for doing the first one, and he basically said, you know, up yours. I'm a working actor. 
You know, you may not think, you know, unless you're Tom Cruise, you basically have to take every go- every gig that you get. Uh, and so that's, you know, in my opinion, why those two films opened lower than, you know, much lower than expected. Is that you didn't have a reason to get people into the theater other than it's more of what you saw two years ago. And, you know, being optimistic Maybe, just maybe, they were films that I want to see them, but I don't need to see them right now, and I'll see them over the Christmas week. Hmm. Uh, the, the week. The weekday numbers will be very interesting. Uh, if Sherlock Holmes 2 is anywhere near where Sherlock Holmes 1 was at the end of the year, even with that extra weekend, then you're not going to panic. But if the film, you know taps out and it might because you've got a gajillion films opening over Christmas and you've got Mission Impossible 2 taking all the press you you might end up with a you know 120 million in the US and hope to God that it does overseas numbers which and that's been the pattern this this year where you have sequels that slightly or significantly underperform compared to their predecessors but do monster numbers overseas transformers 3 cars 2 kung fu panda 2 pirates of the caribbean 4 none of those films approach the domestic totals of their previous films all of them pretty much topped the overseas numbers by a healthy margin um but the big story the big story is the imax debut of mission impossible 4 um this was a huge gamble on Paramount's and IMAX's point. You had a 400-screen debut five days before the the regular opening weekend. Uh, I've never seen anything like this before. This is a genuinely new idea, bringing back the idea of if you want to see a movie first, you have to see it on a quality theater. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, you know, officially that was Brad Bird's reason why he wanted to do it. He wanted to bring back the idea of, you know, the premiere, the you know, again, you you don't you don't get to see this movie first in a shoebox theater or you know a, a, a megaplex at the mall with lousy light levels. If you want to see it first, you have to pay a premium, but you're but we're going to get your money's worth in the presentation. Um, it did thirty two thousand dollars a screen on four hundred twenty five screens. That's the eighth biggest wide release per screen average in history. Um, Pardon me for using this line again, but mission accomplished. Everybody's <laughs> everybody's talking about how good the movie was. Everybody's talking about how much fun it is. They go into Christmas weekend. I think it's going to dominate Christmas weekend box office. And if it does, if it has a huge opening weekend, or if it takes a certain amount of loss on opening weekend because of the sneak preview, but does very good business over the long run, this could be a game changer. You could see big movies doing early IMAX releases. You know, the, I don't think The Dark Knight Rises is going to do it because they want that three-day opening weekend record. And they're not going to get it if they open five days early. Mm-hmm. Um, you might see it with The Amazing Spider-Man. If Sony thinks they have the goods, where it, it's, it's supposed to open like on Tuesday, the... It's like a July 4th weekend. Yeah, July 1st, 2nd, whatever. They may go Friday and say up yours to whatever movie is opening on the 29th. Um, I think Warner Brothers is looking, you know, would probably, again, if they have the goods, if it's a good movie, uh, Superman, Man of Steel might do this. Uh, Star Trek Two: the maybe possibly Wrath of possibly Khan might do this as well. <laughs> Although the Avengers, do you think they could do it? No, they're set. No, they're set. They want the three day record. I don't yeah. think they're going to get it, but they want it. That's that Marvel, like May, beginning of May yeah. weekend. There's a good right. get there. And it's not 3D or IMAX. Uh, I think 
I don't know. I don't know if it's IMAX or not. It damn well should be, frankly. But mm-hmm. and I uh, see those explosive Scarlett Johansson farts in the background. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, we can hear five lines of dialogue on a giant IMAX screen. <laughs> yeah, uh, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. The Hobbit. Whatever. There you go. Yeah, because cool. um, that's that's, you know, that's a movie that's playing for legs. They're not, you know, uh, the next Twilight movie, unless they think they can get the opening weekend record. Um, but, and the best part about this, and this is long-term, you know, speculation here, if the movie does well over the long-term, fueled by the IMAX platform release, we could finally see the end of the opening weekend is everything mentality that has frankly gripped this industry for 10 years. And that will have a number of positive, uh, effects. Frankly, I think you'll start seeing better movies overall, um, because if you need more than just the opening weekend, you know, if opening weekend isn't everything, if it's not all about, you know, marketing, 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 get them there in the first three days. You don't care if it does 90% of your money in the first 17 days, then that, then there is an incentive to make a good movie. Um, but I have been rambling nonstop for five minutes. <laughs> Why do you guys think Sherlock two underperformed? I am really curious about that myself. I have no idea. Like this is not the movie. Of the movies that I thought Mission Impossible would be the movie that kind of you know floundered out and around this time mainly because it doesn't it doesn't seem like that after especially after Mission Impossible three which was you know a lot of people like that movie I like that movie a lot but I know studios are you know blaming Tom Cruise's antics for that movie not doing as well as the, as the second film and I was curious as to why they put Mission Impossible down at Christmas time holiday time among all these other movies that are all coming out no one wanted to play chicken apparently because you have you still have all these movies opening at the right at the the dead of the year and it's like that seemed like the movie that was bound to you know not do as well just because of the supposed tom cruise's star has faded kind of thing but that was not the case apparently mainly because it's you know a fantastic movie and it has some good things to bring to there's just a lot of good things with that with sherlock i have no idea why it's so it's a very successful movie with a couple years ago like it has it has robert denny jr who's still arguably one of the most popular movie stars in the world right now like i i don't know why sherlock did not perform as well as it because as it's pre- if why did not didn't open better than its predecessor did it's confusing to me but even then I'm like sure. avatar like how, how much did avatar open in its opening 77 weekend? in its opening weekend yes okay and, and that, that was had- the giant snowstorm yeah, that had that. It had basically no, no, you know, no stars in it. Essentially, yeah. no, no, like giant box office. Stephen stars. Lang. Yeah, yeah Stephen Lang. <laughs> uh, Michelle Rodriguez and Sigourney Weaver. Uh, <laughs> the, the 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 idea was was James Cameron had a 3D movie. That was the big selling point of that one. I I don't know why a sequel to a very popular first film would not have done as well. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's a confusing it's, one on me. I, I'm very, scary. I'm very curious to see what legs this movie has, especially with all the movies that are coming out in the coming weeks of how well it's going to do overall. Um, if I may offer a brief mea culpa, I thought uh, Paramount was borderline ridiculous for not moving Mission Impossible forward to the summer. Yeah. Um, once they once they decided that Star Trek Two was going to come out in 2028, uh, <laughs> I was basically saying. You know, dear God, move Mission Impossible for the summer. Oh God, you know, June 29th, summer, summer, summer. Uh, and then they did it with G.I. Joe instead. Of, and I even wrote an article saying, good idea, you know, basically, you idiots, what are you thinking? And I was wrong. So it happens. Um, <laughs> sorry, carry on. Yeah, uh, Jordan, any thoughts on? Up here, the push for Sherlock Holmes, like, hasn't been aggressive. Like, I just haven't seen enough of it. And I'm not sure how it is in L.A., but could, I mean, that could be 
possibility was that the marketing just wasn't as aggressive as say like Avatar or or, or even the first Sherlock Holmes. I felt um, they were pushing that more than with the the sequel. Yeah, I, I don't know the uh, marketing. Marketing seemed about on. It did seem very. I get. I mean, samesies was the kind of the thing that I was feeling about the whole marketing for sure. Like as basically Scott said, I mean, it's all. It seemed like basically the same exact movie again in terms of how it was being marketed, which is right. you know, how I would say how the first one kind of worked out, just in terms of how that movie managed to be a success, along with you know the quality of that movie. So, huh, it's yeah, it's a, it's a stumper, honestly. Like I've, it was it was surprising to see that low of a number for Sherlock for Sherlock Holmes too. I, I don't know. Did Iron right. Man? Did Iron Man two open higher than? Yeah, it did. Yes, it did. And that's actually what I was thinking as an example. It did one hundred twenty eight million versus the hundred million for the first one. So it was like like a twenty nine percent rise. So I was expecting a twenty nine percent rise this time. And Iron because Man, it, had, yeah, okay. it also had the same problem of a frankly a crappy villain. Oh boy, it's it's a shirtless Mickey Rourke with whips. That's scary. <laughs> with a terrible accent. Um, with a ridiculous that, Russian accent. But he he went on to reprise that role in the Expendables later on in the summer. <laughs> yes. So yes, yes, yes. But still, that movie did, to a you know a token degree, top the original's opening weekend. Mm-hmm. So I figured at least it would do. I mean, yeah, twenty nine percent of sixty two would have been a record for December, seventy nine million dollars. So I wasn't entirely thinking of that, but you know, sixty five, seventy would have. I mean, as I said, it's it's. I I don't want to believe that there is some kind of phantom box office slump running around and people have magically stopped going to the movies. But those two movies opening as low as they did, it's scary. Mm-hmm. Well, also, a lot of people didn't like the first one, which surprises me because I I find it very entertaining. But yeah, we can we can get to our thoughts on the on the movie. But even then, I mean, it still made a ton of money. The first one, <laughs> like like even that's like no one no one really liked Transformers too. But that movie, you know, <laughs> that that movie has has its own bank, like <laughs> the bank of Transformers. Speaking of Sherlock so heavily, let's move into our review of Sherlock Holmes: A Game of Shadows. you see? Everything. That is my curse. Oh, how I've missed you, Holmes. Have you? I barely noticed your absence. I'm knee-deep in this single most important case of my career. What are we up against here? The most formidable criminal mind in Europe. Professor James Moriarty. If we can stop him, we should prevent the collapse of Western civilization. No pressure. All right, so that was a little bit of the trailer for Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, the sequel to the first Sherlock Holmes film, which also starred Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, and was directed by Guy Ritchie. This sequel finds Sherlock deep in a web of trying to <laughs> trying to basically trying to catch, capture Professor Moriarty in the act. Moriarty's the anti-Holmes in a sense. He's every bit as clever as Holmes, but also in the guise of a seemingly good guy, except he's actually an anarchist looking to kind of bring down well, Western civilization. And so Sherlock eventually gets himself involved in 
Moriarty's plans and has to figure out a way to stop him with the help of his trusty aide, uh, Watson, who is, well, he's trying to move on himself as he's getting married. He's gotten married now, and, well, he's going to, I guess, help Sherlock out one last time. And also helping them is a gypsy named uh, Madame Simza, played by Numi Rapace of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo Swedish films. Hmm. Two actors from the same movie in the same episode. But, um... Mm -hmm. Things progress and get heavy as Sherlock and Watson try to make their way in capturing Royarty. So, so light-hearted um, sleuthing ensues, I guess. So, Abe, what did you think of Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows? This was a, a, a really fun movie. I really enjoyed it a lot. I, I thought that it was uh, it was good as a detective story at its core. And it's, uh, it was kind of really taking the viewer along for the ride. Um, the way that they were filming the... Some of the scenes, like the the forest action scenes, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, you know, with like the slow mo, and then also like this the high speed, and it's just pretty cool stuff. Um, I thought the acting was really cool, uh, really good stuff from uh, uh, even Stephen Fry being very uh, you know strange as Mycroft Holmes, and um, and then I thought about it, I was like, wow, you know, I think Stephen Fry would have made a good Moriarty, except he doesn't really have that much, you know, he he doesn't really give off that that vile you know sense of uh when whenever you see him on the screen but hey, uh, yeah hey i have a qu i have a new question for you now philip seymour hoffman naked or stephen fry naked wait which one is more disturbing <laughs> does it is it does it matter how i how i context that question <laughs> I, I think i could stomach stephen fry more because his, his accent kind of just is like okay yeah all right and you know he's, he's a little bit more free with himself i'm sure <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah, that's, that's pretty disturbing. <laughs> and I think that the film was smart. Uh, it wasn't overly smart. It wasn't trying to like make the viewer think too hard, but it was it was clever in a way, which is almost my my retro view of Ocean's Eleven and some of the BBC Sherlock. Um, so it, I really enjoyed this movie. Actually, I, I I didn't think that I was going to. I mean, I saw the Rotten Tomato score, and I was like, oh, well, maybe it's you know average at best. But I was like, yeah, it's actually a pretty fun entertaining movie i think one of the only drawbacks is the tad long i, I really didn't like the length that much but uh, other than that i mean everything was was pretty pretty cool yeah i quite liked it um a, a, a bit actually uh, more than the first one uh but kind of like the first one like apes like there were some lulls in the in the pacing but overall you know it, i i found it to be hilarious <laughs> um i i laughed more than than I have in most comedies that, that have been released this year. Um, I, I thought Stephen Fry was great in it. However, I wish there would have been more of Moriarty. I, I felt like we, we, we didn't get to see enough of him, and we were kind of just thrown in there with no real introduction to what's been going on. It, it's kind of, kind of like, oh, this is the end of his story, and I wanted more of 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 the, the, the development of of who he was. But having said that, I thought that, um, what's his name that played Moriarty? It's Jared, Jared Hurst. Hurst. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought he did a, a, a fine job with the character. And I've heard some people complain that, um, his presence wasn't strong enough. And I, I disagree. I, I, I thought he did just fine. He was menacing. And, um, the, the end with them playing chess was, was thrilling. I thought, <laughs> I, I wasn't big on the whole gypsy subplot. I, I felt that kind of went along for too long. Um, 
as well as uh, them riding on the donkeys. That one, <laughs> that one scene, that Lord of the Ring esque <laughs> shot, uh, that seemed to go on for half half the movie at one point. But I enjoyed it. Cool. Thumbs up. Cool, Scott. I enjoyed the picture overall. I liked the first one a little bit more. I thought it was a slightly more. The first one was a slightly di- more disciplined picture. Um, I liked. I felt. I, I sort of missed the first film's melancholy. There was a certain character-driven sadness to Watson and Holmes' relationship the first time around. This was a bit more. Hey, they're just two goofy pals who like to bother each other. It's like the odd couple with detective, mis- you know, with mysteries. Um, the th- ironically, the thing that I liked most about the first film, their relationship, was the film. The thing that I found most tedious this time around, mainly because you know they're squabbling, and all I'm thinking is. I just want to get back to Moriarty. I mean, the film's about 120 minutes without credits. And there's about 40 minutes of this film that are just dynamite. Uh, the prologue, which is about 10 minutes long, is phenomenal, um, which which introduces uh, Moriarty. And yeah, he's not a particularly imposing character, but without going into details, he kills several people right off the bat. Yeah. And so that's nice. That's, that's how you establish that he's a bad guy. You have him killing people. Um, and then there's a scene about right at the end of the first act where, uh, Sherlock Holmes goes to meet Moriarty and they have a a conversation, which I won't reveal the details of per se. And that's a wonderful scene Mm -hmm. that establishes that he is menacing, not because of how he acts, but simply because what he does. And he doesn't have to act menacing because he is menacing. You know, if you're willing to kill innocent people and blow stuff up and whatever, you don't have to prance around. You don't always have to, you know, laugh maniacally while you're doing it. Um, and there's a there's a decent, you know, basically any scene where Moriarty was in was phenomenal. But, and, and, and you guys mentioned this, there wasn't enough of him. And this is another place where I feel the film faltered by not casting, by not casting a bigger story as Moriarty. Because you had a character actor, there wasn't the pressure to give him sp- time in the spotlight. One thing I did think was kind of interesting is you really only saw Moriarty when the character saw Moriarty. And this was actually kind of similar. I might be mistaken here, but to my knowledge, you only saw Moriarty when certain other characters are running into him. Mm-hmm. And that was actually similar to you know Heath Ledger as the Joker. You never saw the Joker in his, his IDOP planning his evil plots. You only saw him when everybody else saw him. But the rest of the film, frankly, the middle, I found kind of tedious. Uh, I didn't care about the action sequences, though a few of them were relatively impressive. I liked the fight scene in the first act where uh, Sherlock Holmes used, you know, chains a bad guy and uses a chain as a weapon. It's, it's hard to explain, but it worked very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought uh, Numi Rapace, is that how you pronounce her name? Mm-hmm. I believe so, yes. I thought she was as boring as on Buttered Toast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this film, and arguably the first film as well, is a paramount example of the problem that I have with, oh, there's got to be a girl. You know, yes, I don't particularly want to see films that are pure sausage fests. <laughs> and I, you know, the, the, the world is 50% women. We shouldn't see six dudes and a hot chick. But if there's no place for her to be integral to the story, Yes, I would rather have just seen a picture of, you know, Watson and Holmes running around trying to stop Moriarty. You know, she had no real purpose to be in the film. She she was not a love interest, thank God. But, you know, she didn't really provide any interesting information. She was just there because there's got to be a pretty girl tagging along to put on the poster, to put in the trailer. Um, ironically, 
and this is the very opening scene in the movie, but Rachel McAdams does have a few scenes in this film. It's basically an extended cameo, but she does show up enough to make an impression. And she is far more interesting in her extended cameo than she was in the entirety of the first film. I completely agree with that. Yeah. And the re- my, in my opinion, the reason for that is because she's not being constrained by being the quasi-love interest. Basically, she was there in the first film. Oh, no, no, no. Sherlock Holmes and Watson aren't gay because there's a girl there. As opposed to Sherlock Holmes and Watson aren't gay because Watson's marrying a woman. But that's another thing. Um, I just, it, it, and I've written about this before. It always drives me nuts where every, anytime there's a friendship between two men, everybody starts you know, talking about how gay they are. And frankly, that's an insidious form of homophobia. But getting off that for a moment. Because she was not the love interest this time around, she was free to be the villainess, basically. You know, she is an active participant and, you know, does bad things. And when she and, and, and Holmes do meet up for a, a moment or two, I don't want to go into details and how they meet up because it's kind of a spoiler, but they basically are flirtatious enemies. And it was far more fun seeing them be flirtatious enemies than the first film where, you know, she's the she's kind of a villainess, but she's really an okay girl. And it's okay for Holmes to have feelings for her because she's really not that bad. And I, so I want to wrap this up because I've been rambling for too long. I loved all the stuff with Moriarty. I found the rest of the movie comparatively tedious. So as a result, I did not like it quite as much as the first film, but I would still recommend seeing it. All right. Um, I would say I put it quite. I put it right on par, on par with the first film in a couple of ways. Some things it does better than the first. Some things it does, you know, lesser. I do think it's. I do think it's a little long. Um, I just, which is a similar problem that the first one had, where it kind of carries on. It could have been tightened up more. Could have dropped some things. Mainly, yes, the gypsy plot involving Numero Pace, who, much like Jared Harris, is like that's not the traditional choice that you'd make for you know the lead actress in your you know, your big franchise picture, which might've also contributed to why it wasn't, you know, star power does mean something, I think. And I think that might've, that might've had an effect, but it was an interesting choice to see her be chosen as the, you know, the lead actress in this film. But with that said, she doesn't get much to do. She gets to basically arrive with Sherlock and Watson at a scene and then wait outside while the boys go and play. That's kind of her role in this film before, after like an, after an opening action sequence with her, which was quite enjoyable. Yeah. She doesn't really get much to do here in this film and you could have kind of dropped that character you would have tightened up the film right there and i would have liked it even more probably but with that said getting back to the good things i liked a lot of this movie quite a bit i the i, I like the action a lot in this movie i, I, I really there is a lot of there's a lot of stakes i think i think the um i think a, a problem with some action certain characters that are you know you know they're not going to die that kind of affects a movie sometimes but i think with sherlock holmes these guys get beat up quite a bit in this movie. Like these guys, you see them going, getting rough and tumble. You see them taking shot. You see them bloody, bloodied and black eyed and dying at points. Like these guys are, they're taking some hits along with being just detectives. And I kind of admired that. I admired the, um, yeah, the, the sequence that like is all in all the trailers is the big slow-mo chase sequence through the woods, which I thought was, it was, it was very much Guy Ritchie having a lot of fun. I admired seeing his visual style at work and scenes like that in other scenes throughout the film as well. I like the, um, there's a really cool um, Jude Law moment where I was thinking, this is just like Enemy at the Gates that I really admired because yeah. he's got, there's there's some sniping action going on. I was like, this is really, this made me think back to that. That was kind of cool. 
I yeah, absolutely love Jared Harris and more the Moriarty role, especially in his confrontation scenes with Holmes, the way those are played, the way the rivalry is established and how they interact with one another, especially in the final payoff and how that plays out. That I, I thought that all that stuff was 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 really well handled. I do wish there was more Moriarty and once again less gypsy stuff and that would have made it happen. But overall I, I like the the I like the way he was handled in this film. I like the um the way he matched his knowledge with Holmes in more ways than just talking about it and seeing it exhibited in action. I thought that was really cool. And yeah, what, with um, as far as Downey and Law go, I, I like um, Jude Law a lot as Watson. I thought that was really ingenious casting for the first film. And I liked him once again here. And Robert Downey Jr., he just seems to be having a blast as the Sherlock Holmes character. But even with that said, there's not maybe not as much... Well, Scott put it best. There's some, there's melancholy in the first film, and uh, yeah, it's more it's kind of, it's more lighthearted, I guess I would say overall than the first film. But I do I there are some there are some Sherlock beats in here where it was like he, there's kind of some drama in the situation that I kind of saw. Or I, it was like okay, I I I liked where they didn't really need to expand the character, but I kind of saw he had motivations that were somewhat personal that I kind of appreciated, which came across to me anyway but yeah overall yeah i really did enjoy this movie a lot and i've been saying all along if you really liked the first movie you'd probably really like this movie if you thought the first one was okay you might like this one more i know a lot of people that just thought it was the first one was okay and really came away liking this one more and if you don't like if you don't like this the first movie you're not gonna like this one because it's it's not it's not your father's sherlock i really hate that expression but it seems to keep catching on so many times it's it's very much a it's a it's a hollywoodized sherlock but i don't think that's a bad thing i think that i think there's a there's a there's a level of charm and wit to the plot beyond just being a brainless action film that makes these sherlock films work for me and that's what's been that's what's been keeping me involved in these films so far the likability of the cast and kind of yeah the charming witty nature of the screenplay even though it's you know it's not intensely smart it's not the it's not the first mission impossible but it's you know it's a good it's a good fit um jordan to call you out um i know you like scores quite a bit what did you think of hans zimmer's score in this film um it, it was basically more of the same from the first one i thought um there, there are a few nice touches i i enjoyed but but overall you know m- more of the same it um the the first one was much more surprising yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, so yeah, I, I, mean, I, I enjoy listening to it. <laughs> I, I have it on my uh, on my iPhone. So that yeah, that was one thing about the first one that took me off guard is just how creative the score seemed to be for Hans Zimmer. So yeah, I was looking forward to hearing this one. Yeah, it is a lot of the same, but it's like I like this. I like this. So, yeah. I like this style for this. I like the Sherlock theme. So that was cool. Oh yeah, it's wonderful. I also thought in the film the um, his little theoretical uh, fights were used to better effect. Yeah, the Holmes vision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To piggyback on what Jordan had said earlier about the you know the, this a later uh, Holmes vision scene, that was really well played. I, I liked the way that they matched intellect uh, at that scene. I, I kind of wasn't expecting it, uh, and I was rather entertained by it actually. Uh, I agree. I. I... I liked the quote-unquote Holmes vision. Um, and I got to tell you, just offhand, when the film was reaching its climax, and I know some of you hinted about what happens, but I, I don't want to, 
when I realized that, oh, this film is not going to end with an action scene, I almost wanted to leap up and applaud. Uh, I just, I, I was generally, you know, concerned that the movie would not end with basically a duel of sorts. You know, basically it would end with an action scene with, hey, look, more gunfire and chasing. Um, and the last 20 minutes of this movie are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mostly. I, I agree. I you say mostly. I think you. Well, I, I think there's. You referred to maybe a cop out on the end. Yes, <laughs> which I'm. I'm barely even gonna hint at. Right. But they had a chance to end in a very brave way that I think audiences would have been okay with. Yeah. And they didn't. And now that I've said that, anyone that sees the movie is gonna pretty much know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Although you know, if you and it's something someone else mentioned about wanting to see the, uh, you know, the progression of the Moriarty story from the beginning. To be fair, that was actually faithfully original novel. In the one story, one of really two stories. He's not that, a, yeah, he's not in many yeah. stories, Moriarty, in the original. He's only in two stories. And the first one, which this movie was adapted from, The Final Problem, it starts as after Holmes has been chasing Moriarty for like four or five years. And it really is the end of their battle. Without going into details, and, you know, the second I saw watson typing up the story on the on the typewriter they like oh okay this is gonna end like the final problem ended cool <laughs> um and it did but then it didn't yeah and even if they wanted to suggest that there was going to be a sequel there there was a lot there were more subtle ways to do it than simply stating okay relax no big deal and i know i'm being stupidly vague here but no, I know what so you mean. Be it. I think they could have, uh, yeah, it, it, it probably would have been cool with just uh, the post. Just a certain reveal yeah. and not a second one. Yes. And uh, no, I'll say this: I did like it. I it it, it kind of rang to the, not necessarily like the the Hollywood need this in me, but more of the just this was all this was this whole movie was a lot of fun, and I was happy with the fun nature of how the, it all came together at the end. Okay, here's here's the point: there is. There are a lot of um, with Sherlock Holmes. He, he, the whole thing is that he, in his mind, he he oh, he managed to to um, predict all these situations ahead of time, you know, using his Holmes vision essentially. And I think there are a lot of things that were set up in this movie that were supposed to come back later on that were kind of not that, that were kind of surprising, I guess, in the way they were called back to and used. And I think I was I I was myself. I was able to call a lot of those things before they happened as opposed to the first film kind of where i think there was a little more of me not seeing it coming necessarily kind of thing did anyone else kind of i did catch one massive clue that i'm debating if i should reveal or not um yeah i did catch one massive clue that ended up being a big part of the mystery uh at the end of the you know that was revealed it's very important at the end of the film (laughs) and i certainly didn't catch anything of that nature in the first time around yeah that's um and I'm debating if I should say what it is. Nah, doesn't matter. Okay. Um, yeah, there, there's just like a few things where I'm like, I can see where this will play into later in the film, right. even even as briefly as they kind of touched upon what that thing was. So. Well, one, one thing I, I, I did like, I remember what I was going to say, is, and I'm going to be vague because I'm talking about the climax, is I love the fact that to a certain extent, Holmes basically trusts his friends to help him. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he and, may, you know, I think it had been de- developed better. It could have been the culmination of an arc, but where he kind of sees Watson as an equal at long last. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't well developed, but I like the payoff anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, how about uh, 
how about Mrs. Watson? How about Kelly Riley in this film? Because she has one really cool moment that I kind of yes, admire quite a bit. Um, she got to she she got to do more in this film, which I kind of admire. Yeah. I wish if they were going to have a girl to tag along, just bring her along. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, that's what I thought halfway through, actually. Yeah. And yep. um, speaking of that scene, actually, that whole that whole train sequence, I actually liked quite. Again, I like the action scenes in this movie, and I like that train bit a lot. Actually, I had a lot of fun, regardless of Robert Downey Jr.'s ridiculous use of disguises. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed that one because it was it was it made sense in terms of the story. There was a reason for everybody to be on the train, um, and there was something something at stake. Yeah, it had the it had the right amount of dramatic tension as well as the right amount of lightheartedness that I kind of admired in Holmes's approach to assist us, him him approaching what helping the Watsons, I guess. Yes, um, and no, it, it it yes, it was a little you know, it went on a little while, but it was it was good action. Um, it wasn't you know Mission Impossible Gross Protocol good, but it was a you know a quality action sequence. And I would argue to a certain extent the action in this film is pretty good. It's just it's hard for me to appreciate it because I felt so much of it was gratuitous. Yeah, I would I would agree with that statement because it it certainly goes kind of a a blockbuster bombastic route for the sequel of making things bigger and not necessarily needing it to be at the scale it was. But with that said, again, I did like the action quite a bit here. I like I, I liked the way Guy Ritchie's acquitted himself to this kind of movie. Um, I think a lot of a lot of people were kind of writing Guy Ritchie off after he, you know, made Lock, Stock, and Snatch, and then kind of moved on to well, he moved on to Madonna, and things went downhill very quickly. <laughs> and then he made Rock and Roller, which I liked I actually. Like Rock I like Rock and Roller a lot. Actually, I watched it again just recently, but it's kind of like, is this guy just a one-trick pony? But then you finally see him kind of flex his eyes, his flex his muscles with you know just a genre movie, basically. Like that's what I've been. I, I personally was like, why, why does he just like make like an X-Men movie or something like that where he can just really get his hands dirty with something that he can just play with visually and not have to worry about writing something. And I think he's acquitted himself quite well with the Sherlock Holmes franchise where he gets to kind of apply his his eye to it and, you know, make it a visually exciting movie, make things. It has a, a really neat energy to it, which is something that you don't seems almost oxymoronical with Sherlock Holmes of having, having him, you know, be a, you know, a fighter and the action scenes going on in the midst of this, you know, sleuthing detective kind of stuff. So I, I like, I like, I like how this film came together overall, even with the problems that we've mentioned. And I, I'd like, I'd like to see where Guy, Guy Ritchie goes from here with, even if there's not another sequel, but with, you know, other films that he doesn't need to necessarily write, but just kind of apply his visual stamp to. I know Eddie Marzion, who is a character actor. Uh, he was in the first one quite a bit as Inspector Lestrade. Was he in this movie much? Like he had he, one scene like towards the, the end. Yes, and, and he gets really high billing. So I'm thinking there was deleted scenes. That's what I'm thinking too. Because yeah, like yeah, third billing or fourth billing, something like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, something like that. Because I did uh, not see him in this movie until like the very so, end. So it's like what? Yeah, happened? in a situation with a, you know high billing like that, either there's deleted scenes or he's the killer. <laughs> so yeah I, I hope there's probably there must be the lead scenes i guess and especially because there's a lot going on in this plot so that was actually another problem i had there was um the movie took its time to getting to what the actual plot was that that's something i noticed like beyond just knowing that sherlock holmes was on the trail of moriarty there was no real plot in this movie up until kind of like midway through it seemed where there's like a finally like a clear path of what needed to be done well, it's it's toward the end of the second act when the plan is revealed. I kind of liked it because, again, you know, if we're 
this isn't really spoilerish. It would, it's the same plot that I mentioned about a, a half an hour ago that Blofeld's been doing since the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, you have two big action films where the villain's plot is basically the same thing for different reasons. Uh, uh, Moriarty goes more the neocon route. You know, I want I want to do bad things so I can profit from it. Um, but again, you know, it's it's the same plot. Very funny. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts on uh, Sherlock Holmes: A Game of Shadows before we kind of give our review or rating? It's still worth seeing. There are good things in it. It's still very literate, very intelligent. The acting is very good. See it at your leisure, which apparently is what America did this weekend. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. So the, the rating scale: we have IMAX theater. Oh. Dollar Theater, Netflix, HBO, TV, forget about it. Where did you settle that one in? Uh, theater, but matinee. Yeah, all right. Jordan? Yeah, theater. Abe? Hi, theater. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, theater theater as well for me. I I, had a, I have a lot of fun with these Sherlock Holmes movies, and I hope they do. I hope this one has legs, because I would like to see a third one. I'd like to see more Adventures of Holmes. Not per- preferably not in 3D. <laughs> well, and, as long as Stephen Fry gets naked, they've got my 10 bucks. There you go. <laughs> Mycroft's Lycroft. That doesn't make any sense, but I'll go with it. <laughs> um, Jesus, that was terrible. Um, let's move on to our retro review, where we, you know, have a few movies that we thought of. Any any movies come to mind, uh, Abe? Uh, yeah, just Ocean's Eleven, just in terms of, uh, yeah, you kind of know what's going on, but after they reveal the things, it makes it a little bit cooler, too. Scott? Um, obviously, the first Sherlock Holmes movie. Um Again, the, the James Bond films that I felt that the film's plot was emulating. Um, so, you know, You Only Live Twice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Spar Never Dies, Moonraker, Spy Who Loved Me. Um, let's see. And, you know, Iron Man 2 and the fact that I felt, you know, they were, they, 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 they didn't have a, a villain by virtue, in this case, a virtue of screen time that was really all that compelling. In this case, when he was on screen, he was great. With Iron Man 2, he just both villains were kind of lame. This so. movie also had action, which Iron Man 2 didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Iron Man 2 was an action film? <laughs> so it, was a, it was a screwball comedy, I think. I thought it was a remake of Batman Forever with no action. Uh, yeah. Jordan? <laughs> uh, just, uh, just the first Sherlock Holmes, really. Nothing I, I thought of Mummy Returns, and mainly because The Mummy Returns, which is a movie I don't hate, actually. I kind of enjoy that movie. But compared to the first movie, it's the exact same movie, except you've added an annoying child. That's The Mummy Returns. <laughs> it follows all the same plot beats. And that's kind of what I was worried about with Sherlock Holmes, too, where it, just, it would just go the bigger version of the first movie, where it rehashes everything about the first one, but just does it bigger. But it didn't actually. I thought there was. A, I thought it did a good job of separating itself and making itself seem like an, an an additional entry into the Sherlock Holmes film franchise, opposed to just a new coat of paint over the first Sherlock Holmes movie. One of the things I liked about the Mummy Returns actually is that I again I, I liked the some of the new characters. It is a very hectic movie. It's not as good as the first one. Yeah. But but I liked the increased uh, role, for example, for uh, what's his name, Odette Fair. Yes. Yeah. Get fair, and his him getting his own arch villain, uh, played by Triple A. I'm not gonna try yep. that one, Mr. Echo from Lost. Yeah, uh, and I kind of like <laughs> I kind of like the relationship. I like the relationship that he had with the kid. Therefore, the kid didn't bother me. That he was the character that shared our annoyance with this ch- this obnoxious child. I can agree. And yeah. I I can I can I can forgive a movie certain things when the movie acknowledges what it's do you know acknowledges that it it's doing it, uh, and and mocks it openly. 
Okay, so let's move on to what we're going to talk about next week, and that is going to be the heartwarming family double feature of The Adventures of Tintin and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, yeah, those are... No laughs for that one, huh? Um, <laughs> I was laughing on the inside. I, just, I knew it was coming. I was waiting for, like, a, a huge punchline. Uh, um. uh, yeah, leave all that in. Um, yeah, that, that's... Yeah, so next week we're going to talk about The Adventures of Tintin and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Pro- hope, hopefully in the same show. There might even be a very special guest in my eyes for one of those reviews, but we'll see. And yeah, that's just among the many, many releases that come out next week. So oh I honestly have no way to predict or to ask how we should predict the box up. So let me just list some of these. What, what, what's coming out next week? We've got, we got Tintin, Dragon Tattoo, War Horse. The darkest, darkest hour. Darkest yes. hour is going to be number one. This hour in 3D. It's opening on Sunday, but in one day, it'll outgross everything it opens on Wednesday and Friday. We we bought a zoo. Um, let's see. There's expansion of movies like The Artist, My Week with Marilyn, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close comes out in a few theaters. War Horse comes out. So many, so many movies come out next week. It's absolutely ridiculous. The wide release of Mission Impossible 4. I guess I don't even want to predict anything. Maybe... I know. I don't even want to bring no. anything. We, we, I'm, about, I'm about to cry. We'll come in first, I guess, would be my guess. <laughs> what's the, what's the, who, what, what would come in first? I'm going to go with uh, Tintin. Family, it's going to be Christmas, a lot of, a lot of play. But I think that, uh, yeah, I'm going to say Tintin. Um, I'm going to go with Mission Impossible 4. I would, too. Because yeah. it's it's the one Ooh, movie... I forgot that it's wide release next week. Other than, than Sherlock Holmes 2, perhaps... If you got a big group of, you know, a big family of various genders and various age ranges, that's the one movie that arguably they all can agree on. Mm. It's not a cartoon. It's not an insanely violent R-rated thriller. It's not an insanely cheap-looking PG-13 rated thriller. It's not a PG-rated family picture. It's not a 9-11 drama. It's not <laughs> a very long drama about World War One. although all these films have their, you know, marquee value, you know, every, you know, if you get ten family members in a room, they can all agree on Mission Impossible Four. Yeah, that seems feasible to me. I'm really curious how Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is going to do, since it's basically advertised itself as the anti-Christmas movie. Curious how that's going to fare come this time next week with all these other movies opening, despite it being, you know, based on one of the most popular book franchises currently around the globe, and you know, it's a new. Daniel Craig, oh. David. Well, dude, no, they're not even stars really, but you know, David, <laughs> David Fincher's name on the tip yeah hmm. well you know the and the original film did do 10 million dollars in the u.s so. <laughs> <laughs> that's 10 million mcnuggets <laughs> no i think it'll be a strong number two uh the only thing that might be concerning for that one is a it's about six and a half hours long and <laughs> no it's, it's literally it's two and a half hours long which I, I i'm not the biggest fan of the original i'm seeing this one on tuesday and my my first thought when they, they did the remake is okay at least now they can trim the fat but no because nope. apparently like the twilight sequels girl the dragon dead 2 is the bible and the darkest hour will make ten dollars I mean, I have no idea what the heck they were thinking. It will be my ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you want, if you want to review it for me, send it my way. This I'm not going to have time. This is a movie that my mom and I would love to go see, so we probably will check it out. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, we saw. I remember we saw Black Christmas when that opened on Christmas Day. Oh, so did I. Ago. As 
Well, no, if if I was if it wasn't for the whole white, you know, two kids thing, my wife and I probably would be seeing The Darkest Hour on opening day because that's the kind of garbage she likes. But honestly, why did that movie not come out like last week or the week? December second with nothing else. Yeah, nothing opened that weekend. Like we had to scramble to find a show to do that weekend. <laughs> what did you guys talk about that week, by the way? Did we we talked about the Descendants and we went over like awards. awards oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, right. it was actually a good show. With Mark, with Mark. I, I do watch most of the shows for the record. Oh, with, uh, with Mark, thanks. it was a good show with uh, Mark Johnson. Yeah, Mark Johnson. About, oh, that's neat. We, we talked talked a lot about the awards contenders that were you know upcoming for the year so that was that was a good discussion i really enjoyed yeah. that but uh yeah we had nothing to <laughs> nothing to go on because nothing opened that weekend and it's like why is the darkest hour not opening then it's not going to make money wherever it opens why not just open it when nothing else is there and the thing even last weekend if mi4 had opened an imax last weekend it would have topped the box office oh my god yeah because a it, you know it basically made more than new year's eve did last weekend and you wouldn't have had you know uh, sherlock holmes making 40 million dollars on your butt Okay, so that will do it this week for Out Now with Aaron and Abe. You can find more of my work at my personal blog, thecodeazeek.com, where you can find all my written reviews, as well as at whysoblue.com, where you can find my Blu-ray reviews. You can also... Actually, all of us are having our top ten lists coming out over the course of these next couple weeks, so you know, feel free to check out Why So Blue to find... Uh, me and the, the gang, Brian, Gerard, Sean, all those guys, we're all having our top tens coming out. So, you know, check those out if you want to. They're, they're kind of fun to do. And, uh, yeah, you can also find me at Twitter, twitter.com slash Aaron's PS3. Abe? Uh, you can find more of my work at walrusmoose.blogspot.com, two animals, walrusmoose.blogspot.com, and twitter.com slash walrusmoose. Jordan? Oh, the damn dirty blog at blogspot.com and Facebook and, and Twitter. <laughs> You're around. Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhere. <laughs> Scott? Uh, obviously, Facebook, Twitter, etc. If you want to pretend that I'm important, you can read my stuff at Uffington Post <laughs> a couple times a week. But if you just want to read the stuff I'm writing, just go to Mendelssohn's Memos. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, let's see. Music for this episode will be provided by the Sherlock Holmes and Mission Impossible soundtracks. Make sure to check out our other shows at iTunes. You can find all our episodes there, as well as on the HHWLOD podcast network. We can find our show and the other shows like the Walking Dead TV podcast, Legion of Dudes, Half Hour Wasted. They're all fun shows about comics and games and movies and stuff, just like our opening of our very show states. You can also um, find most of the new episodes and a few exclusives at outnow.podomatic.com. You can feel free to email us at outnowpodcast at gmail.com. And remember to tell Abe to always go to the bathroom before we start the show and, you know, compliment <laughs> our guests and how great of a job that they're doing. Um, you can also like our page at facebook.com slash outnowpodcast. We tend to update quite a bit and provide, you know, We've had two really cool contests so far that were incredibly easy to enter, and people will win prizes. And those people who are listening, I am sending those out soon, so you will get your prizes. And, uh, yeah, good uh, good stuff all around. Um, as I said, this is the end of the show, so thanks again, uh, Scott and Jordan, for coming on today. This was a lot of fun. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. Quite quite, quite epic. It was. <laughs> oh, my God. And, um, you know, happy to, happy to have you guys on again. I know we're going to be trying to do some kind of special end-of-the-year best of list so i don't even know if we'll record maybe in pieces or something just to get something together but you know happy to get get your guys' input on you know best movies of the year kind of thing so you know work that out at some point but uh yeah that's gonna do it this week uh so yeah for that bye 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 adios amigos and then jordan says something good goodbye <laughs> <laughs>